0: Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Indivina, and thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Matthew Weiss. And if you're not familiar with Matthew, Matthew is a recording and mixing engineer who has worked on a lot of amazing music. Uh, He's really well known in the R&B and hip hop industry. He's worked with a lot of artists such as Akon, Chris Brown, Nicki Minaj, Tory Lanez, and so many more. And in this chat, we have a great conversation about vocals and how to record vocals that sound believable and that have good feel to them. Vocals that feel like they're locked in rhythmically, but also have a performance that feels true and authentic. And He's got a lot of great advice in this interview for how to accomplish that. And we also get into a great chat about how to manage low end inside of your mix. And Matthew has some really great advice on how to set up your room to make sure that you're hearing low end accurately so that the process of mixing your low end becomes really, really easy. Now, Matthew also runs WeissAdvice.com, which is a great channel teaching music production tips as well. And I think when you hear his answers, you're going to be able to tell that he's a teacher because his answers are very well thought out and very detailed. So I know that you're going to find this episode very helpful and that you're going to get a ton of great advice from it. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. Matthew Weiss, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How's it going, man?
1: Everything is good, you know, doing my things, getting a new studio set up and trying to catch up with all the stuff that I've gotten behind on in the move.
0: Right on, man. I love it. Well, I had to have you on the podcast because over the years, I've had so many people send me emails saying, hey, have you seen that Matthew Weiss guy? You guys look like you're either the same person or you're brothers or something. It's like, so So I had to like have this podcast. So we have two different voices and people can finally say that it's it's different people. <laughs> it's <laughs> but you got true. the beard, you got the beard going now. So, yeah, that's
1: that's how you can tell us apart. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> No uh, other, no other dissimilarities.
0: No, not at all. I, well, I think we're the same age and everything too. So,
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe.
0: Maybe we anyway.
1: don't look the same age. You look younger.
0: Uh, are you nineteen eighty four?
1: Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Oh man, you must nah, have you a way better diet than me.
0: <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's just a camera angle. It's all good. <laughs> uh, that's what it is. It's, the, it's
1: all the camera angles. Okay.
0: Yeah. Sure. We'll go with that. <laughs> You know. Right on, man. Well, for people who might not know you or aren't familiar with uh, the stuff that you've worked on and how you got into music and your story, can you give us that background?
1: I'll try and keep it quick because, man, if you don't know who I am, that's just going to be boring. Uh, I started when I was young. I've always loved engineering. When I got into college, I was doing all the sound tech work. And by the end of college, i had figured out I wanted to be music. Uh, terrible at every instrument I ever picked up, but pretty good at judging other people so (laughs) went that route got an internship after college moved on got an assistantship uh in new york and then finally got an in-house position in a small project studio in philadelphia and that's where it kicked off uh fast forward moved out to la linked up with the convict team started working with akon and all his artists and that was about six years ago so that's the short of the long
0: That's amazing. Well, I mean, that's definitely a short version of it for sure, because I imagine that there was a lot of steps to get to all of these different things you've been up to. Um, So for you, you said you started kind of mainly going with the live sound route, and that was kind of your your first kind of gig in the industry, would you say?
1: I mean, I don't know how in the industry it was, but my first gigs were all live sound. Uh, In college, I was doing the sound tech work, which was mostly live sound. And then when I got out, I was waiting tables, but I was also doing the live sound at a place called Chris's Jazz Cafe. So that was my first really like official paid gig in the world of sound.
0: Yep. And did you feel like when you finally transitioned over into the studio side of things, did you feel like that live background like impacted the way you approached working in the studio?
1: To a degree. I didn't spend as much time in live. You know, there's there's live like working at a nightclub, hitting the buttons and that's not really quite the same as people who are like serious monster live sound engineers you know and you get a different set of training so i I'd, I'd like to wax poetic and say yes but in reality i kind of was already on the studio trajectory since i was in high school it's always where i wanted to be
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's true it's true like there's definitely a couple different approaches you could take to the live sound world and you know some people are definitely way more invested into the way they carry themselves and actually i feel like the people that are the best at it are often the people that do translate really well to the studio side because they pay attention to those little details and then you get those other guys that are just like you know i was at a show recently and the sound guy was literally just on his phone the whole time and not even like i don't even think he realized his fader for like the left side guitar was completely all the way down and and so no one was hearing it it's like how do you how, how do you have a job doing that if, if you're not going to pay attention and care about the work you're oh, doing because right?
1: it doesn't pay shit <laughs> <laughs> Those jobs don't pay very well. I I was barely getting paid, so I didn't I didn't watch my phone or anything like that. But I mean, I didn't really exactly care.
0: Fair, yeah. So so then, when you got into so you did this, the live thing, and then you were like you said, you were kind of always wanting to get into the studio world. So how did you ultimately work your way into being in a studio then?
1: I I sort of forced my way in. Uh, Basically, I was bumming around Philadelphia and just telling everybody, like, look, take me into the studio. I'll do the work. And I even helped a couple of bands pay for the studio sessions so that I could engineer them. And one of those bands uh, was a jazz trio. And we went to a place called Studio E. uh, And uh, I told the owner, Bobby, I said, you know, I know it's a little unorthodox since I'm the client, but I want to do the engineering. So I I did all the engineering. He just sat back and collected an easy payday. And then he said, hey, why don't you come back next Sunday? we got some drum tracking to do and you know how to do it. I said, yep, I'm here. That's awesome.
0: You know, it, it's funny because I, I keep feeling like there's this recurring theme on the podcast of people who say that they made their way into the industry just made their way into studios and into these roles of being a a head engineer or or even an assistant, uh, just by asking and, and like, you know, just going for it and actually presenting themselves as available for this stuff. Uh, because so many people don't do that. They just think, okay, well I've been told as an intern, I'm supposed to just shut up and say quiet. But at some point maybe you have to kind of prove that you're, you're wanting to go beyond that or, or help even further.
1: There's an expression that goes, be hungry, not thirsty. So as an intern, you know, I've had interns plenty in my day, and the ones who are measured in how much they want to get in the chair and are are polite and thoughtful about it, those are the ones who get in the chair. And then the ones who are insistent and off-putting about it are the ones who ultimately never have a career, as far as I can tell. Oh. So you have to you have to use a little bit of sense, can't just bum rush it,
0: yeah, for sure. I mean you can't be like the the person in the back of the room so like making all sorts of comments when the artist is you know in the room and you know questioning all the decisions and all that kind of stuff like that never
1: goes very well, well definitely not because then you won't even keep the internship, but it should be more like as an intern, you're presenting yourself in a way where you you make it so that people want to have you there so that when you do ask for those things, people are happy to say yes. And if you haven't done that, you're jumping the gun and it's off-putting.
0: Absolutely. So, so then you, you got into the studio, you started working there. um, And then at that point, like you you mentioned that you kind of came from a bit of a background working on a lot of jazz music and now you're doing a lot more like hip hop and R&B and that kind of stuff. Was the studio, what kind of stuff were you working on at that studio? Was it similar music, like jazz, or was it?
1: A lot of it was like old R&B. So Bobby used to be a member of a group called MFSB and uh, the Soul Soul Orchestra, which were part of a bigger conglomerate called the Sound of Philadelphia, which was run by Gamble and Huff. And so he was a session player and writer and producer with a lot of big acts. So the people that I was working with there were like, Bunny Siegler, who was, um, I believe the second lead singer of the tramps, uh, my first session, the one that I actually was asked to come in to do drums for was for George Clinton. Oh, Uh, wow.
0: That's a big session to do for your first one.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I didn't even know it until like halfway through because otherwise (laughs) it was just, you know, I was just recording drums just like anything else. And, and it never really changed because it was just recording drums like anything else really, (laughs) uh, Ronnie Spector was uh, probably my favorite client to work with there. She was one of the original rock and rollers who unfortunately has now passed away. But, you know, that was a great that was a great set of sessions.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the that, that you didn't even really notice that you were working on a big session for your first one, because I think that that is kind of the, the mark of someone who is doing a good job at all times, which is what you should be doing. Right. It's like, it's not like you should be stepping it up just because you heard there's a bigger client coming through. It's, you always have to be giving it your all and, you know, doing your best work right up front.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I had a conversation with Akon once where he, I don't remember what led up to it, but it was like a semi argument. And he was like, Oh, so you're just treating me like any other client now. And I looked him dead in the eye and I was like, yes, that's exactly (laughs) right. I'm treating you like I treat every other client. That's
0: amazing, well it, yeah, it's like you know it I don't know how much different things could be and and if and if they do change, then like is it to the detriment of the creative flow of the session and all that kind of stuff, right,
1: yeah, I mean the, the only differences between clients are how they like to work, that's all,
0: yeah, absolutely, well, it's interesting, so like I, I did want to ask you about working with Acon because obviously he's a major artist and I know that you were hired on to be his, like his recording and mixing engineer. And so when you're working with someone of that caliber, obviously your level of attention to, to detail needs to be really high and you need to be producing great sounding vocals. Um, so I'm curious to know, like when it comes to working either with Akon or just in vocals in general, do you have any tips for getting great vocal sounds?
1: Yeah. Um, The number one thing that I would recommend is just get a really good sense of pocket. Vocalists tend to struggle with rhythm. Uh, Anything that is not percussive in nature, is there tends to be a little bit of struggle with rhythm. And so that's one of the things you're going to have to make up for, and it makes such a huge difference. I think it's a bigger difference than even pitch. I think Mm. you can be pitchy But if if your rhythm is good, people will still like it.
0: That's true, because you you can always correct things tuning-wise and all that stuff afterwards, but the delivery has to be there and it has to feel locked in with the rest of the beat and everything, right?
1: But you can also go back in time and, and see how many pitchy moments there were throughout so many classic records. But you'll notice that the rhythm in the pocket is always good. You know, Jimi Hendrix comes to mind immediately. He's not a good singer. He was, a, he was an emphatic singer. He had a lot of heart and and he meant his words. And I think that's what made it translate. But in terms of his actual singing technique, it wasn't very strong, but his rhythm was impeccable.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. So then for singers who maybe struggle with that rhythm and, and feeling like getting it locked in, what are some of your tips there for making them kind of identify that beat a little bit more?
1: Uh, so I would say this, if you're working in a DAW, and you're set to 44.1 or 48, they're close enough, doesn't really make a difference. Set your a nudge. Uh, in Pro Tools, it's called nudge. In other DAWs, it might be called something different, but it's where you are, you can shift regions left or right by a certain increment. So set that increment to 600 samples, or maybe even like 1,000 samples. Uh, maybe start with like 1,000 samples. And after you record, shift it in each direction back, forth, and just take note of the feel and how the feel changes, you know, especially if you're working with something that already felt right, so that you can hear what it sounds like when it sounds out of pocket. And then as you start getting used to the way those, those feels will change, because it won't just change the time, it will also change the feel, then you start scaling down narrower and narrower. Go down to like 600 samples and start shifting things around and start feeling the difference and then go down to like 300 samples. And three. once you can feel the difference between 300 sample nudges, you're going to be able to tell when somebody might be in time, but maybe not necessarily in pocket.
0: Hmm. Good point. So then how would you describe the difference between the pocket versus being in time then? Because some people would say, like, that pocket is that you're locked
1: in. But you can be, relative to the other instruments, you can be on tempo... Meaning your internal time is correct, and you can be within the range of the rhythm that other things are outlining, but you can be a little bit ahead, or you can be a little bit behind, and those are still within the same range of what we would consider being in time, but there's a feel difference. And, you know, if you're a bass player, you, you're 10 steps ahead of me on this, right? Because you're very used to playing behind the kick drum. They'll say, you know, a lot of times in funk music or in, in rock music, you're playing a little behind the kick. And that creates this pocket that, that makes the kick almost feel longer in a way. So it makes the groove feel heavier. Whereas, you know, maybe if you're playing like punk rock or something, you might be playing your bass a little ahead of the kick. And that creates a sort of tension and speed to the record that almost makes the record speed up, but in a not totally comfortable way. And these things are, are really more feel than actual, like, you know what I mean?
0: Mm -hmm. So then is your approach that you would typically record someone, then go through this exercise that you just described. And then once they've identified where things should be sitting you get them to go back and try to like get it closer to what what they were just hearing with the edit, or is this more of like a thing that you just do in post and fix it up after the
1: fact? It depends because I'm listening. You know, you want to have as close to the correct performance as possible coming in. the The number one thing that I ask myself first and foremost when I'm hearing a take is, do I believe you? Because you you can EQ, you can time shift, you can pitch shift, but there's no device that expressly controls conviction. And if a record doesn't feel believable, there's nothing that's going to ultimately change that. Whereas if if the performance is believable, then everything else that follows, that can all be adjusted within a certain, you know, certain reasonable limitations, but it can generally be adjusted. So conviction is the number, number one thing.
0: Mm -hmm. And is that something that you feel is easy to coach people through when it comes to vocals cuz Cause, cuz cause, no. like cuz the thing is like so many of these lyrics that people are singing they're 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 very personal lyrics but sometimes people have a hard time conveying that like like you said like making it believable because they're kind of embarrassed to like be saying these things out loud sometimes right so like to to get that actual true emotion c- can definitely be a challenge i'd think right
1: it it really can be and actually i i've been a fly on the wall as an engineer in a lot of sessions where the coaching is done very badly there's this uh, this belief that in order to be a great vocal producer you really have to be hands on and you have to be putting yourself into everything all the time you know coaching the artist telling the artist talking to the artist but in reality artists don't typically respond well to that two things happen first they become self aware and second they become self conscious which are not exactly the same thing. Self-aware, meaning that they are now in their own head. So instead of being free with their expression, they're now logicking their expression. And self-conscious, meaning they're also becoming aware that you're observing them. The best performances are typically the ones that are done in the shower and in the car because people are completely relaxed. They don't believe anybody can hear them. And so they don't restrict themselves in any way. And that's the kind of feeling that you want. So in order to get that from an artist, it's better to be as invisible as you can and go from there.
0: I love that. That's great advice. And it's definitely something that I've, I've caught myself even doing sometimes too, right? Like you suggest something and then you can just tell all of a sudden that now of uh, that one note, the, the singer is just like focused on it and they've lost sight of, you know, what they should be doing.
1: Yeah, vocal production is psychology. So if you want to become a great vocal producer, you want to start talking to therapists and reading some psychological handbooks and things like that. Uh, There's a few good tricks that work for some people, don't work for everybody. But one of the things that I find is that if somebody's technique is getting in the way of them being able to be completely free with their expression, if they have any kind of fundamental rudiments in their singing and aren't kind of just like kind of doing whatever... I ask them to show me how to sing it. As opposed to me telling them, you know, oh, sink into your hips more, or, oh, relax your shoulders, or, you know, find your core again. That can work for certain types of singers, but the the end result of that tends to sound very trained. But if you get them to show you how to do it, what they're not doing is thinking about how they're doing it. They're thinking about how you would do it. And so it takes their mind frame from being that self-conscious mind mind and removes it so weird stuff like that that feels a little counterintuitive um the other thing is just to make sure that they know that they're in a safe place because it can feel like they're in under a microscope when they're under a microphone and you know i'll goof around with artists i try to make it feel very light and very easy you know I, I don't watch Clock, really, if I'm on hourly or whatever it is. And I'll goof around. I'll sing songs. Sometimes if a, a singer needs to get into a vibe, I ask them what their favorite song is and get them to sing that. And, and I'll sing along with them. And I'm not a great singer. Uh, I, I can be okay at times because I know the background. But, you know, I'll kind of fuck it up on purpose anyway, just to be too completely goofy and out there, to let them know that they can be vulnerable. If I can be vulnerable, they can be vulnerable.
0: Of course. Yeah, I had one guest earlier, uh, James Paul Wisner, and he he said that one of his approaches to getting vocal takes that just feel authentic is sometimes to, you know, the singer will go through a bunch of takes and then he would say, you know, on this take, just do something completely different, just like something that you think is going to be horrible and or like, you know, just like something that doesn't feel natural. And those were often the takes that he said where you would get some sort of like real body reaction to the way they were singing things. And, and often, you know, you cut and paste little bits from those into the final take because that was where people were, like, the most authentic.
1: Right. Because they're removing that mindset, that logical mindset of how do I how do I perfectly deliver this? And then thinking about technique and, and you know, trying to nail the pitch and the time. And you want to remove that and get them just to be emotively conveying the meaning of the words.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So then when it comes to creating that um, atmosphere for a singer to, to feel comfortable and to be able to be authentic with their, their performance, like you kind of alluded to this earlier when you said that Akon and you had that conversation about, you know, I'm just another client like, and how you said that some people just kind of ex- have a different expectation of how the session is going to run so that they kind of get, get what they're looking for. So how do you create that vibe in the studio? Like what, what can be done to make a singer just feel super comfortable and and give you their, true self.
1: Well, don't take that out of context. That was regarding not something that was happening during a session. That was us discussing something that had to do with the actual working relationship in session. The artist is the most important person in the room. And, you know, in session, you want to make sure that they have the confidence. Like an unshakable kind of a confidence and so that means whatever they say goes basically i mean obviously there are certain lines that you wouldn't cross but you know if if they want to mouth off or act crazy or be weird you know you support those things so that they don't feel like they can do any wrong basically anything that gets rid of those inhibitions is typically the way you want to go
0: makes sense yeah, and it's, I apologize for taking it out of context. Obviously, we didn't get into the context there, but but um, but uh, yeah, that makes sense. And I agree. Like, you definitely have to always make the singer the the priority in that moment. Really, like whenever you're working with an artist, like whoever's recording, that's their your priority. You're just focusing on them and making them feel comfortable to get that right performance. Yeah,
1: before and after session, every client is equal, but during session, that client is is the most important client. So I don't. I'm not picking up my phone for another client. If I'm in a session, because there's no client that's more important than the one that I'm in session with. Absolutely. That makes sense.
0: Yeah. Um, So then speaking of vocals and, you know, once you've got these great performances and they feel believable and they're locked in rhythmically and all that stuff that we just talked about, when it comes down to like the mixing side of things, what are some of your tips there for getting a vocal to
1: sit clearly in a mix? I think it's, it, it depends on the role of the vocal, but in the styles of music that I typically do the vocal is very much a focal point and that's going to be true for probably most of the people that are listening. So I generally like to, (laughs) there's two conflicting things to this. I tend to like to get my vocal to have the sound that makes sense for the record. And then everything else caters to that. At the same time, I don't necessarily start with the vocal. Uh, I typically start with the elements that give me the inspiration And that can be anything that could be like a little blip noise or just whatever to me is giving me the personality of the record, because then that tells me, okay, if this is the personality of the record, I need to make sure that the vocal personality is bringing that out as well and then cater around that. Gotcha. That makes sense. So then when it comes to
0: um, those other elements, then because you're not focused on the vocal, is it typically that you're. You're kind of just getting your your bass mix going, your instrumental, let's say, and then you're just kind of uh, carving out some space on those tracks that you know typically a vocal would sit better with.
1: I don't carve out a lot in terms of like EQ stuff for the vocal. Um, There's this really interesting thing psychologically as human beings that when we hear a voice, we focus on it. So I just need to make sure that nothing is distracting. And a distraction is not the same as like a frequency masking thing. There will be times when uh, the frequency masking from other instruments will become issues. Uh, that's very typical of like vocal and acoustic guitar. And so then I will do some carving. But a lot of the times when you're working with programmed drums and synths, you don't really have the same kind of issues. So it's more about just making sure that anything that's taking my focus away from the vocal is doing it in a very deliberate way or is not doing it at all. Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: Then what about like compression? Like what's your approach with vocal compression? Cause I know some people swear by like just slamming a vocal real hard just to keep it really leveled up level down. And, and, you know, it doesn't, it can just sit on top of the mix cause it doesn't really move too much. But what's your general approach there?
1: So when, when you're looking at things that way, you're looking at it from a Sonics point of view. And I think that there was a little bit of that in the last question too. And I, I don't, typically stress the sound of something which is a little weird as a sound engineer but you know let me explain it the end listener doesn't really hear exactly the sound of a record that's not what they gravitate toward what they hear is the feeling of a record and sometimes records that sound like absolute shit feel really good i can think of lots of songs you know And people will get mad at me, but by today's standards, especially some of those older songs, you know, a lot of Led Zeppelin songs, the kick drum is basically non-existent. Jimi Hendrix, a lot of that stuff was demos from his living room. Uh, Bob Marley Redemption song, that acoustic guitar recording does not sound good to me. Uh, But these are amazing songs, because the spirit and the feeling and the heart and the musicianship is there. You know, uh, Pumped Up Kicks comes to mind pretty quickly when I talk about this kind of stuff. From a sonic point of view, that record is a mess. But because it's a mess, it works. Some things work when they're very clean and organized, some things work when they're dirty, and most things work when they borrow from both points of view. The dirty things need to be dirty, the clean things need to be clean. So the question, to circle back to compression, is what is the feeling that you start getting when you use the compression? Consistency is sometimes a good thing but when you lock something in place and there's no dynamic, what happens is you create tension because the inflection of the voice and what the voice is psychologically cueing people to hear is a rise in volume, but that rise in volume is never happening. So you get tension. It creates an effect almost that's similar to actually like putting pressure on a vocalist's neck when you start to really dig in on some compression. And sometimes that's exactly what you want because you want that tension. Sometimes that's exactly what you don't want. So the question is, what feeling are you going for? Then figure out how you're going to set your compressor. The only sonic thing that is sometimes a consideration with compression is just making sure that there aren't any really dynamic overs. So if you're recording drum kit, you know, sometimes a little bit of limiting or compression can be good just to make sure that you're not getting unwanted overs And similarly with vocals, if you have a very dynamic vocalist, some light compression to keep things kind of together, but that's pretty transparent from a technical point of view can be helpful or necessary even.
0: Yeah, man, I love that description. That's a a great answer because I I think it's it is so true because so many people fall into these habits of just applying the same settings to a piece of gear because they've they've used it before and it worked or or they were just taught that this is this is a great way to do it. Right. But but really, it does come down to that creative decision of the feel and, you know, how, how it actually does manipulate the sound and in in, in, in the listener's experience as well. So I love that answer, Ben.
1: So, I mean, like there are certain b- bits of compression where that, that does technically work and experientially work the same way. If your vocalist is suddenly inside the beat on one line and then outside of it in the next, then it's going to create this very disjointed feeling for the end listener, which you, May want, but you probably don't. So there's there are certain principles that do function correctly, but I think that people don't actually examine why.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I was listening to a track yesterday. It wasn't necessarily the vocals, but um, we, were, my wife and I, were driving somewhere, and, and we even heard we heard this um, like it was like a bus compression thing, or maybe it was an automation move with a specific track. And just as soon as this, like the chorus kicked in, it just got blaringly loud for like you know, like half a second. And I noticed it right away. And, and, but my wife who has no audio skills at all and, and is very like, just not in tune with audio engineering or whatever. She was just like, what happened there? Why was that so loud? And it like took her out of the moment, you know? And, and I think that, that, you know, that going back to what your point is there is just like the feel is the really big thing and making something that has that, um, you know, thinking about it from the from the audience perspective of how they're going to react to this and and what's the impact that's going to happen with it. And, you know, you have to be careful about your settings to, to make sure that they work properly. Um, also, because I know you work on a lot of like hip hop and R&B records. And, and one of the questions I wanted to ask you when it comes to vocals is in regard to autotune. And obviously, auto tune is a heavily criticized thing, but um, but I know that with hip hop, like there there are some people that like to use it very subtly, and then other people that like to use it more as an extreme effect that's heard. And I'm curious to know, like, when it comes to starting a project where you're mixing it and that kind of thing, do you ever have conversations with artists beforehand of like kind of what their expectations are for auto tune? Because I feel like some people could possibly get offended if they hear too much autotune on a track, right? Other people really like it. So just curious to know how you approach that side of it when it comes to mixing.
1: Oh, no, you you have to... I, I know the genre well enough to kind of almost know who's going to want the autotune and in what way. But yes, I, sometimes I'll have conversations about it as well, sure. Uh, because some people don't want to hear it and other people do. The whole point of it is is that it's a tool, it's supposed to be part of the 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 colors that are being used, no different than delay or reverb. So you know, some artists prefer their vocals completely dry. Other artists, you couldn't possibly turn the reverb up loud enough.
0: Yeah, some yeah some people love to just hear themselves drowned out in reverb and that kind of thing. And I I think that that sometimes just uh sometimes that comes back down to that psychology thing that we were talking about earlier, where it's just like psychologically they're thinking like they're embarrassed by their voice or something, so they want to mask it behind a whole bunch of other stuff and. You know, sometimes you have to figure out how to, how do I make this voice sound as good as it can without making the singer feel too self conscious either, right?
1: Well, sometimes it's also a monitoring thing. Sometimes having something that gives the sound back to them it helps them not over push. When you're dry, and particularly in a very dense arrangement, you know, you sometimes you start to fight the arrangement a little bit, and it can it can get weird, you know the cue monitoring becomes very important as well. It's like if you have a very dense arrangement and you turn the vocal way up just so that the vocalist doesn't feel like they have to fight, then you end up getting this kind of calm delivery over a very dense active arrangement. And it sounds weird. Sometimes it works. It works for Snoop. But, you know, it doesn't oftentimes work. Or if you do the opposite where you try to get the energy to match... So you turn the vocal down so that they start over-projecting, then they start having trouble with their vocals. So sometimes something like reverb can help with that. And similarly, auto-tune can help with that too, because if you're tracking with auto-tune, then the vocalist doesn't have to really worry about their pitch so much. It is a bit of a crutch, but at the same time, they can really just focus on the personality of their delivery, which I think is, again, much more important.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that you mentioned the idea of the importance of the volume of the vocal in their headphone mix. And that, that's definitely something that I remember learning in live sound myself when I was doing monitors. It's like that can make such a big impact on, on how in pitch someone is and how locked in they are. Um, yeah. Because they can definitely get in their head quite a bit if it's super loud and, and feel like they need to start singing softer or the other way around, like you said. And, and uh, it... it it's it's a the detail that a lot of people don't, don't consider because they just think about like mic positioning and that stuff, but really like headphone mix does play a big role in
1: that performance. No, it changes it dramatically, and there's actually this weird effect called oculation where if you uh, cup your ears or you put headphones on and you just talk, your voice sounds different, and your interpretation of the pitch of your voice can be different as well because it typically will make your voice sound lower. So you need to make sure that they're hearing themselves enough and clearly enough that they're not he- relying on their own voice, what their own jaw is giving them back in order to measure their own pitch. They're going to be sharp frequently.
0: Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point and great, great phenomenon, because, yeah, I think a lot of us can relate that if you've ever heard yourself recorded, when you listen to that recording, you always think your voice sounds thinner than it is than you hear it yourself, right? Yes, yeah, so that's exactly what you're talking about there, the oculation. Um, and yeah, that's just like a, um, what is it, like a bone thing or something like that, right? It's like your bones are vibrating. That's why you hear that.
1: Yeah, it's the temple bone, which is located right under your ear, resonating. Yeah, that's crazy,
0: but it, it makes sense. It definitely makes, I think that's why people get self-conscious all the time, because they're used to hearing their voice a certain way that when they talk to themselves or when they talk to other people and, and uh, to actually hear it recorded and played back to you sometimes can, can fool you a little bit. So yep. Yeah. Um, Another thing I wanted to talk about in regards to a lot of the music you're working on now is low end. And obviously working on a lot of hip hop and R&B, low end is super critical. And it's one of those things that can be tricky for a lot of people because, you know, there's an art to getting it sounding big and full, but at the same time clean and not overpowering a whole mix. So I'm curious to know, like when it comes to approaching low end, what's your typical approach for achieving that?
1: I think that low end is very challenging because it is the most technically challenging aspect of sound uh, low end does not play nicely with rooms it's hard to control it takes more energy to be heard accurately so my technique for low end it doesn't really come down to what i do with the low end it's more about how i hear the low end one of the things that i highly recommend to anybody who's setting up a studio in their own space you know you're you're in a space that looks like it's not too different than the size of mine, maybe about 12 by 14.
0: Mine's a 11 by 7, 11 by 17.
1: Oh, 11 by 17. That's actually not a bad proportion. That's a pretty good proportion. Uh, but, you know, you're still in a space where with 11 feet of width, you're going to be getting certain degrees of, you know, modes that are going to show mm-hmm. up. So I don't know if you spec your rooms or not, but you can probably do this by ear, but even by taking your monitors and moving them, you know, maybe one or two inches to the right or one or two inches to the left, you'll notice a change in the low-end response. And that's that's not even getting into, like, treating the space, but just finding the right speaker position to give you the better low-end response. Once The more you can do to get your monitoring as best as it can be, the easier the low end is going to get, because in reality, the technical side of what you do with it is not any harder than what you would do with any other frequency range. In fact, once you can really hear it, I think it's actually a little easier than the top end sometimes, because there tends to be a little less going on, but getting to be able to hear it accurately is the real struggle.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love, that's a great point that you brought up about the speaker positioning, because it does make a really big difference. And, uh, like I was telling you, like, I, you know, I've, I've been, only been in this space for about a month and I noticed a huge difference when I first set it up uh, compared to my old room. I was like, oh, man, I'm missing like all this low end. I couldn't figure it out. You know, like everyone always says like a 38 percent rule. Follow that. And so, I like, you know, I started there.
1: You can't you can't do the 38 percent rule. Not yeah. in a, maybe with a 17 foot length. Maybe you can do 38 percent. But I'd say 17 feet is probably the bare minimum.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I tried it out and I was like, I'm still not quite getting it. And then. It was. I went through the exercise of just like moving my desk forward and backwards, and just kind of seeing like you know distance. Like, let's see how that plays a role. And and it made a huge like I moved four inches, and that made such a big difference in the low end of my room and how I heard it. And now it's like great. Now I understand it. I I feel comfortable comfortable and confident with the low end here. But it's it's funny how like monitor placement does really play a big role like that in terms of hearing it.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example because I just ran into this. So. My room is also 11 wide. And in the middle, there's a window, but the window's offset. So the original way that I set up my speakers, I bisected the window, basically, which meant that my right speaker was closer to the wall than my left speaker was closer to the left wall. That So right speaker is slightly closer to the right wall than left speaker is closer to the left. I think it was like, uh, like 2 feet 8 inches from the left and like 2 foot 4 inches on the right or something like that. So obviously that's not going to be the typical placement you would want for imaging. But I was listening and I was like, okay, the low end is not terrible here. There's a good amount of punch to it. Actually. There's definitely some wonkiness because it was untreated at the time. So then I move it so that the two speakers are then equidistant from their respective walls. And I noticed immediately the punch in the low end went away. And I, I wasn't, I didn't do a direct comparison, so I wasn't exactly sure and maybe I was just hearing it differently, but then I spec'd it. I spec'd the right speaker where it was at. And then I moved it two inches to the right and spec'd it again. And there was like a four dB jump in 85 Hertz and 65 Hertz that came back. And so it wasn't like, I actually have the graphs and I'm going to put them up at some point. So I, I'm not sure where, probably on Weiss Advice, my YouTube channel, but just that two inches really made a very significant, like not subtle at all difference.
0: Yeah. it, it, it It's, it's such a crazy thing, right? It's like people will kind of rush through that process of setting up their equipment and you're doing yourself such a disservice by doing it that way. If you actually like, you know, really move things around and, and listen critically and, and like you said, like measuring your room um, it can really set you up for success from that point forward. Right. Like just spend a little bit of time doing it and, your life will become significantly easier because you're not trying to make up for deficiencies in your room.
1: Yeah, and I think it also depends on what you're doing, too, with with how deep down that rabbit hole you need to get. If you're producing, I think that basic superficial treatment is probably fine. If you're very serious about engineering, you should have a calibration microphone and you should know how to spec your room. And, And nobody wants to hear that because that's a lot of work and sometimes it requires learning a new skill, but you have to be able to do this because that's part of what engineering is. That's how I got the gig with Khan, basically. I came in as a technical consultant for a studio build because I'm an engineer, and that's my job. <laughs> you know,
0: yeah, it's true. Well it's like you know, I think people look at pictures of these big studios and are like, "Oh, I wish I had that someday and and it's like, well those people set up their rooms properly. So that's part of the problem, you know, and, and yes, maybe these rooms are a lot bigger and maybe they have more fancy treatment or whatever, but it's like, you know, there's still a level of detail that went into making those rooms sound as good as they do.
1: I would rather show off a flat room response that I designed myself than show off an SSL board any day. Yeah. You can buy an SSL board. You have to earn a flat room. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and I've heard plenty of
0: rooms that have SSLs. I've heard plenty of engineers make awful mixes on them, you know, because yeah. they don't I've know the room. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it definitely. Like, there's a, a comfort to to knowing your equipment and knowing your room. And, and yeah, that's a, that's a really great point about just hearing that low end. Um, so then, once you've once you've got that low end and you're you are hearing it accurately, you know, often there is that debate of like kick versus bass and that kind of thing and and you know making it so that each of those are heard clearly. What's your general approach to that because I know some people will say like the kick should always be below the bass or vice versa,
1: you know, do you have a preference for that? Most people are are not thinking about the song. What's what's motivating the record? If it's the 808, you're going to want the 808 louder. If it's the kick drum, you're going to want the kick drum louder. If it's the bass guitar, you're going to want the bass guitar louder. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what's motivating the record? Ask yourself that first. And then the answer is apparent.
0: Yeah. And yeah, I guess that ties into your earlier answer of just like the feel of the record. Like what is that thing that really is the thing people gravitate towards? Yeah. It makes sense. There's not
1: a, there's not a right or wrong to those things. And you know, a lot of times you can make both of them work. It's just, which one are you going to favor and, and how important is that favoritism? Because in, in the best records, there's typically an element or two that are, that's masking other things. You know, really good records are seldom very perfectly balanced. In fact, usually perfect balancing of everything is boring. You end up getting elevator music.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Uh, (laughs) So another thing that I'm curious to know about, too, is the idea of uh, working with samples. And obviously, hip-hop and EDM, you're working a lot of samples. Um, as opposed to, you know, maybe live instrumentation and that kind of stuff. Um, And I know that with a lot of sample-based instruments, like, a lot of those samples tend to come pretty heavily processed already. And I'm curious to know, do you find that that changes your approach to mixing at all? Because, like, do you ever think, well, the artist or producer has already kind of chosen a sound that they think sounds finished? Like, Does that have any impact in the way you approach mixes?
1: Yeah, but there's a lot of different ways to use samples. Um, There are samples like like samples of drum one shots in which case you know by default i tend to assume that the producer sent what they wanted to hear and so a lot of the times i do very little tweaking on those actual drum one shots especially nowadays because a lot of them sound really fantastic already out the gate uh, and then i just cater around those kinds of things but then there's samples like entire arrangements of like a record byte where it's like an entire completely recorded and produced song that now other things are showing up on top of. And I kind of can think about that two ways, depending on how the sample is being voiced. It can either be like, if you picture a room, the sample is a mural on the back wall. So it's bright and it's colorful and it's there, but everything else is in front of it. Or... The sample can actually be doing the work of the arrangement, in which case I'm doing the opposite. I'm digging into the sample and going, oh, we really need to hear the bass more from the sample, so I'm EQing up that bass, or you know, there's a piano on the side that's adding a really nice color that maybe wasn't so important in the original record, but actually kind of feels like it's connecting with the record here, so I'm doing some kind of crazy weird mid-side EQ in order to bring up some kind of a piano sound or something like that. So it really depends on what the sample is doing arrangement wise.
0: That makes sense. And I guess it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where like, if you're having conversations with the artist ahead of time, you kind of already have an understanding of what, what they want in the end sometimes. Right.
1: I think also, if you know the culture of the music, you know, one thing that people say is that if you can mix one thing, you can mix anything. And I don't believe that that's really true. I think it's true to an extent, but I think if you really understand the culture of a music, then you, a lot of times don't need to have th- those conversations. You kind of already just know, but if you don't know, yeah, ask.
0: Yeah. And I, I agree with you. Like it's like the more you, you, the more you've listened to that style of music, the more you pick up on kind of the expectations of that genre. And you know, that, that's going to guide so many of your decisions, whether it's EQ or volume or, you know, compression or whatever, like all of those things are going to come into play because you're already familiar with the expectations of the audience and that, that genre. Yeah. yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, Weiss Advice. You would mentioned it earlier. And, uh, and obviously, like with Weiss Advice, you're, you're helping people really understand how to mix in the pop and R&B space. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: I'd like to believe that I'm just helping people mix in general. Okay. Uh, I do actually have a fair amount of rock behind me. I, I won a Spellman Award, actually, for a rock record. Back in the, back in the, back in the day. (laughs) So, I mean, I'm not a stranger to rock and roll music, and I love rock and roll music. The only thing that I don't do a lot of is metal, specifically. I'd love to, but I just don't get hired to do it. Um, With Weiss Advice, it's, it's a little different than a lot of online platforms, because I'm really interested in helping people become better at what they are doing, as opposed to showing people only what I am doing. And so giving them, you know, a model to work off of. I think there's some legitimacy to creating a model for people. But in reality, every experienced engineer and producer is going to be so different that those models aren't necessarily going to translate to everybody. I think it's more interesting and more valuable to be able to look at what somebody else is doing and say, okay, these are the choices they're making. This is what they're gravitating toward. This is their style. How can we bring that out? How can we emphasize the good things that they're doing and maybe get the stuff that's inhibiting them out of the way? So that's the premise of that. Uh, there is the channel on YouTube where it's me basically just sharing my ideas. You know, I love to talk about what I do. You love to talk about what you do. It all comes from the same place. Uh, and I try and sort of Put the inspirational stuff in there in a way to really try to get people to do it on their own and and learn to hear it themselves because that's the starting point but then I have the website where there's a lot more connectivity going on. I have a discord group you know there are archive tutorial full length archive tutorials so there is that kind of like you know watch learn observe but then I'm trying to do really i'm I'm doing like maybe two webinars a month as like the typical, but really at times I've done webinars every day of a week, you know, trying to go and do as many of those things where people can actually sign on and we can go over a record in real time and get a conversation going. And then also doing one-on-one coachings so that I can hear what they're doing. And then, you know, they can post it up in the discord and we can talk about it those kinds of things.
0: Yeah, very cool. I love that. And I think you brought up a really good point, too, that is something that I've always approached my own teaching side of it as well with, which is that it's not just about modeling what someone else is doing and just like saying, you know, here's what I did to a mix. Now go do this. like Copy these settings because it really doesn't work that way. Every song is different. Every mix is going to be different. So I think it really does come down to understanding the thought process and how someone makes the decisions that they make. Because once you understand that, then that will make you a better mixer because you know how to troubleshoot the various scenarios you're going to find yourself in. And and that's definitely something that I found with your content that I really appreciate is that you do, it isn't just like, do this, you know, or, this is what I did. It's, it's, it is, you do understand the thought process behind it. And I think that that goes a really long
1: way. It's more important because there's so many, there's not a lot, there's, A couple of right, objectively right and wrong decisions that you will make in the course of a mix, but the really vast majority of what you choose to do in engineering, but especially in producing, it's ambiguous. There isn't necessarily a right or wrong. You need the threads of the ideas to connect, and that's what's going to determine if the choices are right or wrong.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think about even just my own experiences like early on working in studios and assisting people and you'd see one person do do something one way and then see another person doing it the other way and if you only learn from one of those people you would think that that's the only way to do it. But when you see both sides of it you're like, "Oh, why why do you do it this way? And why do you do it that way?" And and then it kind of starts to make sense like, "Oh, these are all decisions people are making in terms of, you know, how to get the sound that ultimately they want." And so when you understand those things it really does go a long way. Do you find that teaching has made you a better mixer? Yes. I 100 percent agree with that, too. Uh, I, it's one of those things I think where like, you just when you start to um, start to teach it, you have to kind of discover what your process is, and you start getting very uh, in tune with those decisions even further.
1: Not only that you stop doing irrelevant things. I think my biggest handicap as an engineer when I was first starting out, was that I was doing things for the sake of doing things and I didn't really know why. And then, years later, you get to that point where you're doing a lot less. Sometimes you're doing a lot. Depends, you know, sometimes... But oftentimes in records, it'll be one thing is getting an obscene amount of treatment and weird things going on, and then everything else is getting, like, nothing. <laughs> but there's, <laughs> there's less irrelevant steps. Everything has a purpose. And that's really, I think, foundational to To having those lines connect, to having those decisions interact with each other. The other thing too is is that you know my students, and I, I almost hesitate to call them students because they're not really even exactly students. A lot of them are colleagues and peers. Uh, maybe at earlier stages of their career, but even a few at later stages of their career. Actually, one one of my quote unquote students is now more accredited than I am, which I think is kind of neat. Uh, but they give me a lot of feedback because of those interactive things, and I had one who their ideas were so good in the webinar, I got them credited on the mix. <laughs> <laughs> That's Just amazing. like you know, so I it's you can learn from people at any level. An intern will come in with a fresh idea. A vet will have a way of doing things that they were doing before you even entered the business. And then your peers will just have different ways of doing things. So you can learn from anybody at any stage.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. It's it's so true. It's like, you can always learn something new. And as musical genres evolve, as people's tastes evolve, all that kind of stuff, like there's always going to be something new to learn. Um, And yeah, so I mean, really, kind of the the foundation of why I was asking that question is just because I feel like I wanted to see your experience. And if you notice that you made you a better teacher and I'm not obviously saying to people listening to this, that everyone should go become a teacher. But I think that there is something to be said for really actually evaluating your process and how you do things, because like you said, you might've overcomplicated things in the, in the early stages. And now you've learned to simplify and, and get a little more straight to the point. And I think that that's a really good thing. A lot of people don't take the time to do with their own process is, actually evaluate, like, why am I constantly doing these things out of habit or, you know, that kind of thing. I, I think it goes a long way in, term, in terms of just making you a stronger engineer and understanding that thought process, that decision-making process. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I know you're not feeling the greatest, so definitely want to give you some rest. Uh, if you want to learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Easiest way is to go on YouTube. Type in voice Advice. That's W-E-I-S-S Advice. And you'll see my channel there, and that's the easiest way to just get a sense of how I teach, get some great information at no cost. And then, you know, if you want to dig deeper into the rabbit hole, and you want to really get into, like, like some serious education, then you go to com, and that is the website, that's where you pay me, and that's where I teach you. Awesome.
0: Right on, man. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this. I, I really appreciate it. I think you gave us a, a lot of great takeaways that uh, people are going to be able to implement into their mixes and hear some better results
1: as well. So thank you. man. Right on. right on, man. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So that was my interview with Matthew Weiss. And that was awesome. I really like where we went with this conversation. And I thought that he shared a lot of great tips. I really liked the part of the conversation where we were talking about the importance of low end and speaker placement and how Moving your speakers just the slightest bit can actually make a huge impact on the low end. And as we talked about in the interview, both Matthew and I are both currently in the process of trying to optimize our rooms. He just moved into a new space. I moved into a new space. And it is so critical that you take the time to actually consider proper speaker replacement and finding your ideal listening spot so that you get a flat frequency response out of your room and that you can hear the low end accurately. Because, yeah, the slightest differences, like I said in this interview, can make a real big difference in terms of the low-end response. And I know in my case, it was literally the difference of moving my chair four inches that made all of the impact in my room. All of a sudden, the low end just started to come out and become so clear and way more balanced. And so, you know... Sometimes we're just playing in a matter of inches, and those inches can really impact the work that you do moving forward. So definitely take the time to actually play with your room and experiment with having your speakers a little bit wider, a little bit tighter, a little bit closer to your wall, a little further away from the wall, and see what sounds best. Because when you take that time, it honestly doesn't take very much time. But when you do it, it's going to set you up for success later on and make your life a lot easier. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that episode. I thought Matthew shared some awesome tips there. And if you enjoyed this episode, definitely make sure to subscribe to this podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And definitely make sure to leave a rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. There are a lot of people looking for audio podcasts, but maybe aren't sure which ones they should be listening for. So if you like this podcast, definitely spread the word about it if you can. And by leaving a review on the Apple Podcast app definitely goes a long way. Also, visit masteryourmix.com. That is where I help out musicians with creating pro sounding rock recordings from their home studios. And where on there you're going to find tons of great resources to help make the process easy for you. And as I always suggest, One of the first starting points you should check out is a book called The Mixing Mindset, and that is a book that I wrote a little while ago where inside I walk you through the process of mixing step-by-step, helping you identify what questions you need to be asking yourself at every point of the way, what to be listening for, how to dial in settings. That way you can ultimately make the sound that you hear in your head come out of your speakers. So check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end, and I look forward to chatting with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one thanks for listening to the master your mix podcast to have your questions answered submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com please go to itunes and subscribe and leave a review and for more information on how you can improve your mixes visit masteryourmix.com